The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching text comes from Jonah 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. This is the word of the Lord. Well, family, good to see you. We haven't met before. My name's Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited for tonight. We're going to be, uh, like Keila just read, in Jonah 2. So if you got a Bible, you can flip there. It's going to take us a little bit to get there, but we will, I promise. Um, let me pray for us, and then we will get into God's Word together. Father, we're thankful to get to gather. We thank you for... Uh, the sacrifice of your son that makes it possible for us to be family. Jesus, we thank you for making us right with yourself and also right with one another in the ministry of reconciliation. Be with us tonight as we open your word. Help it uh, to form and shape us into the people that you want us to be. In your name, Jesus, amen. All right, so quick recap if you're just hopping in with us. We're studying the book of Jonah, and the big picture theme of the book uh, is really that we're stepping into two realities. One is that Jonah rebels against God. Jonah consistently over and over again is going to reject God, and we do the same. We run from God. But secondly, God chases Jonah down. Over and over again, he's consistently gracious to him and to us. We sin and rebel, and God keeps coming after us. The book of Jonah is not just about a guy and a fish. It's about a lot more than that, and we're going to keep seeing that every week. So uh, as we get started tonight, I want to pick up where we started or where we ended last week at the very end of the first chapter in verse 17. So uh, just look to the last verse right before chapter 2. Let's read it together. Jonah 1.17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So we got a little bit of a speed bump before we get into chapter 2. And that's the reality of a guy gets swallowed by a fish and lives. And not only lives, he lives inside of the fish for three days. What do we do with that? Um, I think for some of us, we, we don't really have a problem with verses like these in the Bible, the miraculous. But I think the reality is for many of us, this makes us really uncomfortable. We don't really know what to do with this, or it's the reason why we find the Bible hard to believe 
outright. Or maybe that's not you, but you at least know somebody that fits into that category where you just read stuff like this and you're like, come on, there's no way, right? So I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about Jonah and really the idea of the miraculous at all. Um, the first thing I'd tell you about the book of Jonah, I'm trying to figure out if it's real or not, is to look at Michael Packard. Michael Packard. You're probably like, who is that? Let me tell you. He's a lobster diver, lives off the coast of Cape Cod. A year ago, he was swallowed by a whale, and he survived. So what I'm here to tell you, what I'm here to tell you is that the best defense, the best apologetic for the book of Jonah is a thousand-word article that the USA Today posted roughly 18 months ago. You're welcome. You can Google that. I'm mostly joking. It's totally anecdotal. Here's the reality when it comes to the miraculous, when it comes to looking at stuff like Jonah and the whale, is that when it comes to this stuff, you have to look to Jesus first. have to look to Jesus Here's what I mean by that. One, the whole of Christianity hinges on the resurrection. That we believe that Jesus was a real person who lived a perfect life, who died a sinner's death that we deserve, and rose from the grave. We, we believe that happened, and we don't have time to get into all the historical arguments and defenses for why we think it happened. But if you believe that, then ultimately all of the other supernatural miraculous events in the Bible, they have to be plausible. They have to be conceivable. Secondly, Jesus himself refers to Jonah as a historical figure. And he refers to the events that happen in Jonah as historical events. So he says this both in Matthew 12 and Luke 11. I'll just read you Matthew 12. It's not going to be on a slide. Let me just read it to you. He says, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. He's talking to the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders at the time. They're questioning him, putting him on trial, telling him, will you show us a sign to prove that you're the Messiah? He says this, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. That's a spoiler. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So this is the argument for why we would believe this story and also all of the other miraculous events in, in the Old Testament and throughout the Scriptures and the authority of Scriptures is that Jesus himself refers to them as authoritative. And he refers to them as historical events. He believes they happened. So there's a ton more you could say on this. And if you have any more questions, come talk to me or Tim about it. You could literally do a whole sermon series about the miraculous and apologetics. But ultimately, what it comes down to is you have to look to Jesus first. So with that out of the way, hopefully, let's take a look at the passage for today in chapter 2, verse 1. You can flip there now or read behind me. Verse 1, it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So, the end of the last chapter, Jonah jumps into the sea, and he survives, right? That God sends this fish to rescue him, and he starts praying. Now, many people would say what he's doing here in this chapter is a sign of repentance, that he had a really bad time in the first chapter, that he rebelled against God, he said no to preaching to Nineveh, he goes on the run, and now we're good. But I think 
We're going to see a lot of context clues in the text tonight, and really, if you look at the context of the whole book, as well as some scholarly research, it actually indicates the opposite, that he's not actually repenting. And while it may seem that he's frustrated and angry and sad and afraid because of the consequences of his sin, his prayer actually reads in such a way that he doesn't really take any ownership over any of his sin or rebellion. It's not true repentance. It's false repentance. Jonah's prayer is not true repentance, but false repentance. And what I mean by that is it seems like he's grieved by his sin, but if you get into the text, it's much more of a pity party than repentance. And we're going to do a lot of deep diving into the text tonight and engaging with it to see that. But really up front from the first line of the prayer, his posture is made really clear. Let me show you. We'll just reread what we just read and keep going. This is the prayer. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying... I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Um, if you're somewhat familiar with the Bible, you'll hear what uh, Kela just read and what I just read, and you'll think that kind of sounds like the Psalms. And that's correct. That's intentional. What Jonah is doing here throughout his whole prayer is he's uh, quoting different Psalms. So as a Jewish prophet, Jonah would have been very familiar with the Psalms. In fact, he likely had them all memorized. And even at the time, it was very common practice for, for Jewish people to pray the Psalms as almost a revealing the state of your soul. So what Jonah uh, does here, as he finds himself in the belly of the fish, is he's praying the Psalms, he's quoting the Psalms, stating the, the state of his soul. So uh, as we get into it, what's fascinating is although he's quoting these psalms and bringing, referencing them, it's not a one-for-one. One. He's not directly quoting them. So the first verse in his prayer is a reference to Psalm 120, verse 1, which reads this. I'm going to throw it up on these slides to compare them. Psalm 120 says, To the Lord in my distress I called. However, Jonah changes the word order. He prays, I called out to the Lord. He moves God's name to the back of the sentence and calls his actions to the front, which may seem like a total nothing to us. As we speak English, we're like, it doesn't really matter, right? It's the same thing that's happening in the sentence, but not so much to a Jewish audience. This is actually a big deal. In Hebrew, which was the language this was originally written, what or whom comes first in the sentence is the most important part of the sentence. It's the most important acting agent that's written. So the change from to the Lord I called to I called to the Lord, it actually changes what he's saying. Changes the emphasis of the whole statement. And although it seems small to us and how we write in Hebrew, this is a meaningful and intentional change. So what it is, is it's Jonah's perception that he's the acting agent here, that he's the most important person in the story. And we don't just see the emphasis here in the first line. It continues throughout the whole prayer. So in Jonah, Jonah's eyes, he's the one who approached God. Jonah emphasized his call. You can throw that up. His call. He emphasized his distress, his cry, his voice. His action comes first, and then God responds to him because of what he is doing. Jonah is hyper-focused on himself and his actions throughout the whole 
prayer. And interestingly, Jonah's prayer, it ends the same way it begins. He quotes Psalm 3. You can look all the way down at the last couple verses. Um, In Psalm 3, it reads, To the Lord belongs salvation. But Jonah ends his prayer changing the words again. He says salvation belongs to the Lord. God's name is the last word in his prayer, which again may sound like a nothing. This is how Irene uh, Sun, an Old Testament scholar and author, puts it. I think it's really insightful. She says, Jonah's prayer captured what was true in his life. Jonah came first, God last. You have to see that change. You have to see what he's really doing here in order to get what this whole prayer is about. His heart is about himself, not God. And that's going to be the emphasis for the whole prayer. And if you miss it, you're going to miss what he's doing. You get it, you'll see exactly how and why he's falsely repenting. So what I want to do with that in mind is I just want to show you two signs of false repentance and how it shows up in the rest of his prayer. So look back at the text. We'll keep going and see what he's really doing here. Verse 3, it says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. So signs of false repentance. There's one false repentance never acknowledges sin. False repentance never acknowledges sin. So if Jonah is repentant in his prayer, where's his confession? Where's he confessing his sin at all? If this is supposed to be a a heartfelt, repentant, kind of pivot, change of action, where does he own it? Where does he take responsibility for his actions at all? Remember all the stuff that happened in chapter 1? Like the Bible literally uses irony and satire to emphasize how off he is. That, that God calls him, has, says, hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And it says, Jonah rises and goes thousands, tries to go thousands of miles away to a different continent. That's ridiculous. says he gets on the boat, God tries to get his attention, and he jumps into the sea, most likely to kill himself, not to repent. So if this is a prayer of repentance, where's the confession? It's not there. Not a word on his sin, not a word on what he's done wrong, just that he's desperate, that he's worshiping God and he will worship God, but nothing on how or why he's actually in the situation he is. In fact, it seems like he's actually angry at God, that he's blaming God for what's going on in his life, like God is putting him through some type of trial because that's what he does to the righteous people, like righteous suffering. So throw it back up there, Megan. It says, you cast me into the deep. Is that true? He jumped in. He says, I am driven away from your sight. Again, he's blaming God for this. And in chapter one, it says he ran away, away from the presence of the Lord. He did it. He wasn't driven from God. He runs from God. It all doesn't really read right. So um, 
Psalms generally fall into two buckets. You got psalms of thanksgiving and psalms of confession. It's the genre, so to speak. So psalms of thanksgiving are written because God delivers his people who were looking to him for deliverance. And that matters. It's people that were looking to him for deliverance. And the genre of Jonah's prayer is thanksgiving, and that doesn't fit. Because, yeah, God rescued him, and he should be thankful But in the midst of it, he's totally disconnected from what's going on. Jonah wasn't seeking deliverance from God. He wasn't seeking God at all. He was on the run. He was rebelling. He never sought him. In fact, the the unbelieving pagan sailors begged Jonah, hey, will you pray to your God? And he doesn't. He just jumps in. Like he's totally off still. He wasn't righteous in any way. Theologian Daniel Timmer says it this way. Jonah, although he is unquestionably in dire straits because of his own disobedience, does not even recognize his sin and so utters not a word of confession. It's just a continuation of his posture towards God and towards what's going on in the first chapter. And it's going to get even worse. So look back again. Keeps praying. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Notice he's still doing the same thing. I remember the Lord. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Second sign of false repentance is that false repentance plays the victim. Plays the victim. So this is very fascinating. We need to see that although Jonah is quoting multiple psalms, it seems that the bulk of his prayer comes from Psalm 18. You can see that the the themes are almost identical. I'll show you what I mean. See if you can catch it. So uh, Jonah 2 2 through 3, and Psalm 18, 4 through 6. I kind of just highlighted what stands out. So he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and you see the reference to Sheol, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Almost the same thing in Psalm 18. The cords of Sheol entangled me. In my distress I called upon the Lord. Same imagery, same need. If you skip down to verse 5 and 6, and then 15 and 17 in Psalm 18, same deal. It says, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Same deal. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of the waters. Again, being uh, laid low in need for God to, to rescue him out of the depths. And then lastly, you see it in 7 through 9 and then eighteen six. When my life was fanning away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in, into your holy temple. Almost word for word, the same thing. So even though it's not a one-for-one direct quote, thematically, they're almost the same. Themes of needing to be rescued, being cast away, even the same direct references to Sheol, to the depths, it all sounds very similar. And it actually makes a lot of sense why when you know the context of Psalm 18. 
So Psalm 18 is David's reflection on being on the run from King Saul. So we've spent a ton of time on David's life recently, but essentially what happens is that God appoints him to be the new king of Israel, but the current king, Saul, doesn't like it. So for the next couple years, David is on the run, although innocent and righteous, from Saul, hiding out in caves, praying for God to deliver him because he's innocent. Psalm 18 is the psalm of an innocent righteous sufferer on the run. So think about that. Doesn't that strike you as a little bit wrong? That that is one of the Psalms that he is quoting here. Jonah using the Psalm of an innocent man on the run to lay over the top of his current circumstances, interpreting his own experience through David's. So you see it, Jonah's also on the run. So that checks out. But is Jonah innocent? Not at all. Not even close. Literally everything in the story so far is his fault. It's his fault that he ran from God. It's his fault that God had to send a storm to stop him. And is Jonah on the run because of something God asked him to do? Not really. It's the opposite. He's on the run because he's refusing to do what God asked him to do. Every bit of the difficulty he's encountered is because of his own stubbornness. Therefore, it's a vastly different scenario than the psalm that he's referencing. Once you know that, it begins to get really ugly. You really see how off he is here in this prayer where he's reading himself into this story as the hero. I'm like David. It's gross. So from all appearances, he doesn't get it. He doesn't see where he's off. He doesn't see where any of this is his own fault. In fact, he sees himself as the righteous, innocent sufferer. He sees himself as the victim. Jonah's problem is that he's not truly repentant. He's falsely repenting. And although we're not sitting in the belly of some fish, praying and referencing the Psalms, misquoting, misreferencing, we do the same thing. Do the same exact things. We falsely repent all the time. So just like Jonah, for one reason or another, we run from God. We run from the good things that he calls us into, things like Bible reading and prayer, sacrificing for others, living on mission with your neighbors and coworkers, showing up to group and being honest and vulnerable and engaging. We also run to bad things. We run to things like porn and lust, to anger and resentment, justifying it because you think you're right. We sin and we run and we have to do something about that. We have to pacify and soothe our consciences. And that's where false repentance comes in. And it can look just like Jonah, where we're, it's kind of like a religious spin on it, right? You can even quote verses, but it's a miss because the heart is off. You call it overcompensating with religiosity, where we're putting on a performance. And it's dangerous because it's really close to being the right thing. But it's not, because the heart is off. The heart is just holding on to the desire to make ourselves look right and look good. So just like Jonah, we can falsely repent when we care more about the effects of sin than the sin itself. So I, I don't know. This is an easy example, right? So let's just say you... Um, you know, you, you say something, you offend someone, you, you sin against someone, and they're obviously hurt by it. Maybe they react, you notice it, and you rush in to apologize. Like, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. 
but you don't really care about what happened. What you actually care about is that, oh, I don't want them to be mad at me. I don't want them to hold a grudge, right? We care more about the approval of that person than we do about the fact that we sinned against another image bearer. We do the same thing with God. When we're more worried about him being mad at us when we sin, then we are heartbroken that we've sinned against our loving father who wants intimate relationship with us, that our sin undermines. What we, what we want is just the bad feelings that sin produces to go away. Just get the feelings away. Just like Jonah, when we falsely repent, we're unclear on what we actually did wrong. So when we lash out at a spouse or roommate, friend, and they come and talk to us about it, we justify it. We minimize it. I'm kind of just a victim of my circumstances. It's a hard day, really stressed at work. We think, oh, it was just an isolated incident. We miss what's actually going on, that we are deeply sinful in need of God's salvation and grace in our life and sanctification. And we just think, no, it's just one thing. I'm actually not that bad. We miss it. We miss what's actually going on. Just like Jonah, when we falsely repent, we can have emotions. We can have an emotional response to sin without any meaningful change. So you show up to group after having a rough week and you're, you're sad. Maybe even you have tears and you confess it. But as soon as someone's like, hey, have you thought about trying this? Have you thought about uh, putting up blockers or making a phone call whenever you're really anxious or angry? Kind of like brush them aside. You're like, yeah, 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 it hasn't worked. Or no, 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 in the back of your head, like, I'm not trying that. But I am sorry. I am sad about it. We almost think that the sadness and the emotional response where we beat ourselves up over time is the penance that we pay to make it all okay. And then we don't have to repent. Because we've already paid the penance. And just like Jonah, when we falsely repent, we're full of pride. We're full of pride. It can look just like Jonah, right? Where you're sitting in the stomach of a fish, praying, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What pride and arrogance. Missing it. We may not do that exactly, right? But do you keep score? You keep score of your sin versus the people close to you? Or just generally like, I, I, you know, I know I'm off here, but I've never done that. I would never. I've seen worse in my friends and my spouse, definitely in the world. So prideful. All of those things would indicate a heart that is not really repentant because true repentance is different. The way 2 Corinthians 7.10 would say it is this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow brings death. That's what false repentance is. It's a self-centered sorrow that results in no lasting change and ultimately death. Spiritual death, relational death. False repentance is a self-centered sorrow that results in no lasting change and ultimately death. But true repentance is a gospel-centered sorrow that results in transformation and life. Transformation and life. So where false repentance cares more about the effects of sin than sin itself, true repentance sees that our sin is an offense against God, others, and ourselves. It sees that sin goes against the grain of what we're designed for and how we're supposed to relate to God 
and others, namely love, sacrifice. False repentance is unclear on what we did wrong. True repentance has spirit-empowered self-awareness. But we see it. There's clarity. There's heartbreak. True repentance sees sin clearly, and we grow ever more disgusted with its presence in our life. False repentance is emotional with no change. True repentance is not reliant on emotions. Can you have an emotional response to sin? Yeah, absolutely. You should hate it. But it's ultimately about the action. True repentance runs from sin. It finds new ways to avoid temptation. It confesses before the sin has even happened. Picks up the phone and it calls and says, yeah, I'm feeling tempted. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling angry. And I need help from you. And I need help from God. Will you pray for me? False repentance is prideful. But true repentance is deeply humbled by our sin and our need for the grace of God. Or we, instead of digging our feet in and justifying and minimizing it and thinking, I'm not as bad as X, Y, and Z, true repentance is just horrified by the sin. It's presence in our life and humbled by the truth that our only hope is not us and what we do and how we call out to God, but what God has done for us. That our hope for transformation and salvation is by grace through Christ alone. There's no arguing with God about it. There's no saying, yeah, God, I know that, you know, I I blew up again, but I've gotten really good at scripture memorization. Got a lot of verses, all-time high. No, that doesn't matter. True repentance knows that we can't justify ourselves and we're laid low by sin. True repentance is humble. It's self-aware, empowered by the Spirit. It's active. Because the heart of it is this. True repentance is a change in worship. True repentance is a change in worship. At the heart of what repentance is, is for us to exchange our idols, what we really worship, for God. Because before it's a change in what we do, how we talk, how we spend our time, it's a change in who and what we worship. So just like Tim talked about last week, Jonah's problem was not just an obedience issue. It, just, it, it wasn't just the fact that he was unwilling to go to Nineveh. It's a worship issue. And God's after his heart, ultimately. That's why God picks Jonah to go in the first place. He knows the state of his heart. He was rooting out his idols, the God that, really, uh, that Jonah really worshipped. And that God is himself. The God that Jonah really worships is himself. So no, he won't go to Nineveh. Because to go to Nineveh means that his life might be in danger. Even though he knows who God is, he claims even to the sailors that I worship the God of heaven and earth and I know he'll go with me. But that's not even on his radar. If Jonah preaches to Nineveh, God might save him. And that means that he won't be vindicated and he wants them destroyed he knows they might be forgiven. In his prayer, it's God responding to him, to what he did right. It's completely performance-based. It's all about him, and that's why he's falsely repenting. And that's why we do the same. Because it's about us. It's about us. We're on the throne. We love ourselves more than we love God and others, so we try to check the box and perform and overcompensate or whatever, but we're stuck. 
We're stuck, though, because we can't change our own hearts. And that's Jonah's problem, too. He's sitting in the belly of this fish. I imagine him just sitting in total darkness, sitting in the stomach with all the acid, whatever, whatever the fish just had for dinner. Praying these psalms, heart not changed. And what does God do? Let's see. Verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Remember the theme of this book. It's about Jonah runs and God shows up. God's gracious. God's still after him. So Jonah throws himself off the boat. He's swallowed by the fish, and that should have and could have been the end of his life, but God did something miraculous. Saves him. Jonah's trying to clean himself up. He's candy-coating his rebellion with nice words, with Scripture. It's ugly, and God saves him because he's still after his heart, and I wish we could get that. Like, like think of, Jonah's at a low. He's at a low in his life. And God is after him. God is after us. In our sin, when we falsely repent, when we're completely blind to it, in the midst of our blind spots, God's not keeping score. He's patient with us. He's gracious. He loves you. He's not keeping score on what you did this week. He's not disappointed in how you missed it again. He's constantly chasing after us and our hearts. And, and the, the best truth that we get from the book of Jonah is that we know all that is true because there was a better Jonah to come, Jesus. So just like Jonah was sent to the Ninevites, sent on a mission, Jesus was sent on a mission too, except he didn't run away. He embraced his mission gladly, just like Jonah was thrown into the ocean in the midst of a storm to save these sailors, Jesus dives into the sea of God's wrath to save us. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, Jesus was in the belly of the grave for three days and three nights. And just like God opened the mouth of the fish to save Jonah, Jesus opened the mouth of the grave to save us. And the biggest difference is that Jonah was guilty and never owned it. And Jesus was completely innocent, yet took all of our sin onto himself. We can't change on our own. You can't change on your own. We're going to be bent just like Jonah towards the self and false repentance, but Jesus has chased after you, and he still is. He's not giving up. We have to look to him and receive his perfect salvation and his spirit that empowers us and transforms sinners like us. And that is how and why we actually get from false repentance to true repentance, looking to the perfect Jonah by remembering and believing in him who lived and died for us, even as we live and run from him and falsely repent, he comes after us at the cost of his own life. So you can't change what you worship. You can't truly repent. You need the grace of Jesus to change your heart. And we have confidence and hope and joy that that is exactly what he's promised to do and what he is doing and has done in us. Let me pray for us. Father God, we, we need you. Looking at uh, Jonah, it's so easy to see where he was off and maybe even how we would never miss it that bad. But in fact, Lord, it's exactly what we do. We're blind to our own sin and we need your spirit to help us. 
Jesus, we thank you that you chased us down, that you laid down your life for us. God, in all, in all the ways that we try um, to earn our way to you, falsely repenting, putting on a show, Jesus, we thank you that you're not keeping score of our sin. You're not casting us aside because of our sin. Jesus, you give us your perfect record. Spirit, change us. Help us. God, we thank you that the cross is both the, the beginning, the foundation of the faith, and, and we, we get to lean on it for the whole. It's not about us and what we do. Pray it all in your name, Jesus. Amen.